I'm your host, Kura, and you're listening to Season 1 of the Product Lounge Podcast. In the Product Lounge, we meet with the makers behind product brands to pull back the curtain on their businesses. From humble beginnings through to business-defining moments and the many highlights and challenges along the way, we dive deep into the businesses growing out of product ideas and the unique stories of the people who conceived and created them. Each season, we also shine a light on ideas, insights, inspiration and learnings from industry experts and thought leaders. Welcome to Season 1, Beginnings. In this week's episode of the Product Lounge podcast, we talked to founder Julie Ramsey of luxury French flax linen brand Bed Tonic, based in Western Australia. Julie started Bed Tonic just four years ago at the age of 50, a celebratory birthday trip overseas during which she experienced sleeping in linen for the first time, along with unique childhood experiences, both played a role in her diving headfirst into a brand new online business with no prior experience in products. The result is Bed Tonic, an exquisite French flax linen and clothing company that has gone from strength to strength based on classical values and the down-to-earth nature and persistent tenacity of its founder. Julie, it is so nice to talk to you today. I love to start with a summary of what your morning routine is. Oh, okay. So for me, uh, this time of the year, I usually drop my daughter off at school about 8, 8.30, depending on how the morning's going. And I head to the beach as many mornings as I can out to Cottesloe and I have a swim and then come back and usually about 9, 9.30, I can get started in here in the office, so I've usually got everything done in the house. As you know, we've got a warehouse at home, so I have to disengage from being the mother and the housewife and start work about 9.30, 10, and often that will be emails, answering emails first up that would have come in from the night, so that could be um, customer questions, queries, This morning, for example, I was talking to some people about a template for my email. Yeah, various things throughout the morning and the day. And Mm. then I do my packing in the afternoon. I love it. I love the beach start. Always a good start to the day. Beach and coffee, um, definitely for me. (laughs) I only have one coffee a day and it's first in the morning. And the rest of the time I drink tea all day long. But um yeah, I love the beach, but in the winter, I've got a little. We've got a little schnauzer poodle, so in the winter, when it's not swimming weather so much, I, I uh, take him for a walk around the neighbourhood here. Always nice to get a bit, a bit of exercise and fresh air in the morning. I'd love to hear about bed tonic. I, first of all, I love the name. Tell me, tell me what it is and what you do. So I design and make pure linen bedding and loungewear. And the name Bed Tonic obviously is because uh, the bedding, but we create beautiful soft washed linen loungewear. Beautiful, love it. And look, how did Bed Tonic begin? And this season is all about beginnings. And I'd love to hear you've told me a little bit offline about how the business started. Love to hear that again. So, about six years ago, we were just finishing up. Uh, up in Broome where we had a we had hospitality business up there so I had a drive-through cafe 
and my daughter was about five at the time and we'd been really busy and she'd been in and out of daycare and had nannies and I hadn't really got to spend a lot of time with her. So when we came down to Perth to the city, we bought a little worker's cottage and I said to my husband, we're not renovating, we're not doing anything, I just need to sit in this house for a couple of years and be a mum and uh, be a mum to Molly and then I'll, you know, decide what I want to do with, with my future. So as far as hospitality went, I was around 50 at the time, so I didn't really feel that that's something I wanted to continue doing with ours and it's hard work and coffee by that stage was pretty good here in Perth and my husband and I didn't want to work together anymore. So I spent a couple of years and um, basically just went back to my childhood and thinking, you know, what what are the, the key ingredients and have been in my life and what, what am I passionate about, what do I love? And I think with for me it's design and textiles had always been something that I had always loved, you know, interior styling, et cetera, but mm. I was wanting to do something in the textile line so I'd looked at cow hides, I'd looked at dog beds and different things like that. Uh, yeah, so it came about really once we went to Miami for my 50th birthday and we went on a cruise in the Caribbean and we were in and out through hotels in Miami and we stayed in a beautiful hotel, a bespoke hotel that had the most amazing linen. The bedroom was the bedroom was divine but the linen on the beds and, uh, and after the first sleep I just said to my husband, oh, my God, I've got to find out what, what these sheets are or where they come from. And it turned out that it was French linen that we were sleeping in. And I've always worn it, you know, when I was younger because linen was mm. quite in when I was about 20, but I'd never really known about sleeping in it. And, you know, as far as I mm. knew, it probably would have been a bit scratchy and crunchy. So, yeah. But I came back to Australia here and and thought I want to explore this avenue so I started looking at different companies that were selling linen bedding at the time. And, you know, there's some big high-end brands that were selling sheet sets for mid-500s. And I was thinking, I wonder if there's a way that I can, you know, sell a pr- this product or, or if I can make linen bedding but make it more affordable. And at the time, retail was struggling and still is and, you know, shops were closing and I thought, I wonder with online if that's mm. the way of the future. I see it was. So we we started looking down that avenue and realised that by selling online we could cut the middle middleman out and be able to get, I mean, just because I absolutely loved sleeping in linen myself, I just thought wouldn't it be amazing to get more, you know, if more people could afford to sleep in pure linen bedding and then we would all ne- never leave our beds every day and it would be an amazing life. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and, and look, there was a connection with your mum and, and you were talk, talking then about your childhood and, and your mum was a sewer, correct? So you've always had textile around you. Is that right? Yeah, so I grew up in a small town in New Zealand in Lake Wanaka, at Lake Wanaka and mum was a, a seamstress, so, or she still is, but she's 80 now. So, um, but you know, it was only a very small town back then and mum was kind of the go-to lady so she would make anything from wedding dresses to uh, alterations for different shapes and sizes. I mean, uh, I mean, she just made everything. She made suits and, and all sorts of things. So my childhood really, um, my memories of my childhood were really mum with patterns and materials and the singer sewing machine and people in and out of the house 
in her um, sewing room. And, you know, back then it was all cottons and linens and they were all, they were all pure. The fabrics were all natural fibres. So um, I think that combined with the fact that, I mean, Dad had a rafting business, um, everything was really organic back then. And I, I did grow up and I was really mm. blessed to grow up. In an, in an area where, yeah, it was all about fresh air and lakes and mountains and, you know, wool and and all sorts of fibres back then and uh, manufacturing was done in the country as opposed to offshore. So it was very different back then. But, you know, I see that that's where, you know, we're heading back to all of this now where people are asking questions about different fabrics that they wear and, you know, we've learnt more about cotton production and we're learning more about, the sustainable sustainable side of linen and how healthy it is as a crop, which becomes healthy as a as a fibre. So, yeah, I think we're we're reverting yeah. back to a lot of what was happening when we, you know, back then. Mm. And I love that synergy that synergy that you're describing between your childhood and what you were exposed to, and how you've almost come full circle with selecting a textile to work with that must have, in some ways, felt like home to you. I know, and that's what I think was so special about having that time to actually sit there quietly and come up with, you know, something that I did want to do that I was passionate about. Like I said, I was thinking about, you know, dog beds with uh, cowhide, you know, high-end wooden cowhide, like a, like a sleigh bed or a lay bed for, for pets. But whatever it was that I was exploring, it was always coming back to me, natural fibres, I yeah I really went right back I guess to my roots and um and it still feels special now because I feel like I'm kind of honoring you know what life was like back then beautiful I love it and so how did you how did you get started because obviously it's gone from an idea now a passion something that you felt familiar with how did you just leap into that because I think for a lot of businesses starting out in products it's taking that leap so what did that look like for you Julie so for me I guess I'm I mean if you ask my husband I'm quite spontaneous anyway so we don't procrastinate and it's probably to my detriment sometimes but um I once I decided that I wanted to go down this avenue of exploring linen I really did you know I worked I worked at, I would get up at four in the morning and I was contacting manufacturers and I was skyping and getting samples and you know I went to China and visited uh two manufacturers over there I yeah it was it was pretty full on at the start that the whole um I didn't find it overwhelming because I think once I had decided that that's the avenue I wanted to take I really just went full steam ahead but like I said I I'm not I'm probably not much of a procrastinator and I think once I had decided that that was where I wanted to head it was um it was all systems go and I probably really got the business up and running pretty quick Sure. Um, I, lo- I love that. Not a moment's hesitation. You touched briefly on, on China. You know, did you look around for different in, in different countries for production? What made sense in China for you? And presumably it was a team that you actually met that you had some kind of synergy with and you could see yourself working with that ended up with the, with the maker that you have now. Is that right? Yes, that's right. So I think what it was was when I went and met with, I, I had two meetings with people in China. I had I explored, ideally, um, 
like many manufacturers or, or many business owners, I guess, in um, in fabric, I mean, ideally it would be great to have the linen made here and that's what I looked at first was to source the linen for bedding to make in Australia. But, you know, we really were looking at about $800 for a set of linen, excuse me, $800 dollars for a set of um a set of sheets and you know mm. that didn't go with my idea of affordability um so then we looked at uh, sourcing and using makers in europe and before i headed over there i thought i'll just because i could see and the manufacturing family that i liked that i wanted to go and meet in shenzhen i could see that they also made for a couple of other high-end brands so i thought i'd like to go and, exp- and you know explore that and so when I went across and met them, the family that I work with actually have a weaving plant um, northeast of Shanghai. So they're a very small husband, wife, um, son was going to Adelaide University here at the time. Such a lovely family. And they took us, my husband and Molly and I, they took us, they flew, well, the, the owner as in the husband flew us up to uh, to northeast of Shanghai where the spinning of the weaving plants were and you know we went on bullet trains and we had transport I never would have found these places and they were out in the most beautiful countryside and the, the happiest staff and it just made my heart sing I've got so many photos and little video clips of these people you know we ate with them and I I mean my Chinese obviously wasn't very good but I could communicate through our uh one of the girls that was with us Catherine um and I just was really happy with with it, and I thought, you know, from affordable from an affordable point of view, it, um, you know, I could see the linen bales, French flax certified linen. I could see them from the first stage of them coming in, like a hay bale, to the girls pulling those apart and putting them through the spinning factory, and then the weaving next door. And I don't know. To me, it was all. You know, not, it wasn't a huge factory. I had no idea what I was going over to. I thought maybe these, you know, maybe these buildings are uh, 20 stories high and there's people working mm. in sweatshops. That's obviously what I thought. And with the dyeing, um, so with the dyeing of the fabric, that was that's actually a friend of um, the owner of the company. And when we went to his factory, I, I think I thought that they would be kind of hand dyeing it all. I had no idea. But it's mm. all, a lot of those machines now are fully automated. And, you know, as far as technology goes, they're very advanced over there and there is a lot of wealth now in China and I, I didn't, I certainly didn't see in my chain as in, you know, in the transparency of the of my supply chain, I certainly was very happy when I came back and I thought, well, you know, I can hold my hand on my heart. I know that it's French flax linen, which is, you know, I would like to go to France and see the other side of it, which we will do hopefully next year. With our makers in China, we'll go and see that the other side where they actually source and buy the linen in uh, in Europe. But um, yeah, it was it's fascinating. I was just it was fascinating. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's um, actually you know that where China was at probably twenty or thirty years ago is you know that made in china was almost treated with a little bit of suspicion but that china itself as a as an as a nation uh, and as a uh, as a um key part of 
many, many companies uh, manufacturing, it's a different beast now. It is very much scaled. Uh, the working conditions are, it, you know, in most cases they are held to a much higher standard uh, than you would get in, in other countries now. So so I, it, it really sounds like you have been able to find that type of manufacturing that you had in mind but it's you know built into the fact that you were realistic about the price point that you could achieve in the Australian market. Yeah that's right and I agree I mean it's like I guess my dad would have said um, you know when things first came out 30 maybe 30 40 years ago made in Japan people used to kind of think oh okay but, you know, Japan back then, I can see China now becoming what Japan was um, back in those days. You know, they, China started by being very good imitators and, you know, as time's gone forward, they're now the innovators. And they, mm. yeah, it's, it's fascinating to see. But, you know, every, the amount of, I was just listening to a podcast the other day about a company that started up in America and they were making shoes from, Oh, was it recycled plastic bags? I think shoes from plastic. That's right. And um, the CEO of the company was saying that they actually tried and wanted to set up a manufacturing plant in the States, but they were just struggling on so many different levels. And they ended up going to China purely because um, the technology over mm. there and the way that they do manufacture now in China, it just absolutely it just absolutely made sense to do that. Um, so they did, that's the way that, that they mm. went. And, you know, having been there now myself, I, I really do, I mean, it's, I just, I have a, yeah, I guess I have high regard. Um, I don't know. Maybe there is still a lot of, um, you know, sweatshops and things. But having said that, who's to say that in Australia, with makers here in Australia, um, I mean, I've met with a couple of uh, different companies here and they outsource to ladies who are sewing at home in their houses. But, you know, what sort of pay yeah. rates are people getting paid here? It's all relevant. And, and honestly, the staff over there were so happy and I just think that the way that they were cared for, and I know for a fact that my makers, um, which was, I mean, traceability was really important for me. I wanted to be able to, um, to say on my website that, yes, we are made in China, not try and hide the fat, not try and pretend that we're made, you know, uh, in Europe. I'm, yeah, I just wanted, I wanted to be transparent about everything and be able to come back and put this on my website, show photos, which I do through um, social media of our makers, um, uh, you know, of my different trips over there. Last time I was, uh, we were working with some loungewear. I was just checking on some loungewear um, designs that we had put together, but yeah, I think it's important for me and I think that these days people want to see who's behind a business and they want to see what's it made of, who makes it, um, where's it coming from and they want stories about the product these days. Absolutely. And so, look, just just finishing off on the, on the China factor, um, Australia obviously has a, a free trade agreement with China. How does that impact you? Can you take advantage of that from an importing perspective? Yes, I I mean, my costings are still, I guess, quite high because we work with the US dollar. So <laughs> linen's not a cheap fabric to make anyway. I think if I had have gone into cotton, which, as we know, um, it's not really where I wanted to go unless it was organic, and organic cotton 
worldwide at the moment is still only 2% of what's being manufactured. So that wasn't an avenue for me. But, you know, linen is an expensive fibre for starters because it's very laborious in the early stages of actually getting it, you know, getting it dried and it's an annual crop, so drying and then, you know, the harvesting of it. But I think for me, yes, it's good, um, but, you know, I've got to, I've still got to be very aware of, of my um, import costs. I've still got GST. We've got the US dollar that we have to contend with. Yeah, so it, it, it's still quite a costly exercise, but it's sure. great that we do have these agreements between our countries, yes. Julie, in terms of bed tonic and, and how you work, tell me a little bit about that. Do you, how much of the business do you handle yourself? What aspects can you outsource? How does that look for you? I have outsourced. I, I guess at the start I tried to do everything myself and then I realised that really if I try and juggle that many balls, I'm not really going to be able to focus and, um, and do anything well enough. So for me, I... I guess I chose the areas that I did need help with. I mean, obviously we've got an accountant and I've got a bookkeeper and uh, I have a pattern maker that I work with that we design our loungewear with and she's here in Perth. So she liaises with our manufacturers backwards and forwards. They have, uh, they did have tech packs, which was always a little bit of, uh, with the communication between the two countries that made it a little bit harder, but they've gone digital over there now. So that's brilliant. Um, but yes, there's, I, I definitely have. I've got a pattern maker who I rely on to do a lot as far as our mm-hmm. um, creation of our designs. Because I just, I didn't. Once again, I didn't want to be that person that just finds a dress in a shop and sends it across to China and say, "Can I have uh, two hundred and fifty of these, please?" Yeah. So everything is, um, yeah, designed by us, which is, which is why I, I have this lady. Um, I also have a virtual assistant. Cass, who's on the, she's in the eastern states. Now that makes people laugh because they think they think that maybe she's a, a bot or she's not real. But yes, Cass is real. I um, I have her to do my um, my email marketing. She does a lot of my back end of the website. Um, oh, she's really my go-to girl to do many many jobs. Um, she'll design brochures if I need them. So I have Cass, my virtual assistant, and she works probably about 30 hours a week. I also, last year we rebranded, and that was mostly in part for the fact that, as I said, I'm quite spontaneous, so I wanted to get this business up and going as quick as possible. So, you know, there were a few bits and pieces like labelling, the cloth labels, my my care labels for washing, um, different bits and pieces like that. We needed to tie that all in with a brand. And initially, my logo was uh, a navy blue, and that's often hard to replicate across all across all formats. As far as printing onto a linen bag and printing onto cardboard, and you know, we ended up getting different blue colours and bits and pieces. So last year we rebranded. So I worked with a lady here in Perth who did that mm-hmm. with me. Um, She's still, we still meet up, but she helps me a lot with marketing. She had her own business for years in the Eastern States and she's pretty savvy as far as uh, offering advice. I really like what she puts forward to me. It's nice because it's hard when you work in these businesses on your own and often, you know, we don't talk to our friends about our product because why would we? And, you know, I catch up with my friends in Bedtonic often doesn't really even get mentioned. So it's really nice to, and I think very important to form 
um, a group of people around you who are, who are like-minded. It might be through, um, uh, you know, through Instagram or through with me. I've met interior stylists. I've met through doing photo shoots, which is how I met Dee, um, who helped me with my branding. We do all our photo shoots at her studio at Carmel mm. Hart. So, yeah, I do, I've got a photographer who I try and stick with, Jess Wild, for our shoot. So, yeah, I do have a team of people around me. Um, predominantly, unless I'm really busy, I have I can call on uh, my niece, Jazz, who's at uni, so she can come and help, you know, if we go away for a long weekend or if we're away, Jazz runs the business from here. But I can almost put it on autopilot and, you know, we just put a note on the website and say, look, as everybody does, you know, we've gone for a break, we'll be back on such and such a date and all orders will be packed, you know, and dispersed and mm. if it's urgent. You know, my customers are amazing and people are very, as long as you do your best with customer service, which for me is that is absolutely one of the most important aspects of my business for me is the customer service side. And I feel like people are very good. As long as they know what's going on, I mm. feel like, yeah, it's good. And I guess is that something you you handle directly yourself? Then is the customer service? Yeah, yeah, I do. I do the customer service myself, and you know, I still write a personal note on every item that's packed and sent from here. So I'll write the cards out if, if I've got Jazz helping me to pack. I still write uh, a little handwritten thank you from me, and I think that's really important because when my customers get the package or get their linen or get their loungewear, they have a point of contact and they know that. Yes, the person's Julie. Um, and then often when they're sending me an email, it'll be, hey, Julie, um, you know, I've got this or that. And I feel like for me, I'm happy to do that myself because that's my contact with my customers rather than, you know, Cass mm-hmm. does my emails. And But she's not me. Cass can do my Instagram too. But at the end of the day, I try and even do most of that myself where if I'm, if I'm putting something in about myself because Cass doesn't know what type of cakes my favorite or uh you know where we where we might want to be next weekend on holiday or you know what I mean I feel like for, yeah, for my sure, personality yeah I still need to have my personality in my brand because that is a big part of um as I said about the whole transparency and you know a lot of my customers now will will email and I've, I've made I've made friends with so many of our customers it's great that's wonderful. So really being in the driving seat of the customer experience from where to go. Yes, I am at the moment. And sometimes I do wonder, you know, we're four years in now and and the business is obviously um, leveling up. I think we, we increased by over 30% last year. So I do wonder what that's going to look like in another, you know, two, three years. Am I still going to be able to be as um you know, that point of contact for people as much as what I am now. But I hope that that will still be the case. I hope I can see that, you know, yes, we'll be in a bigger warehouse, but I still want to be the person there that is saying, you know, with the girls that will be working there and, you know, I still want to be having an input in all of that. You know, I can see them saying, hey, Julie, you know, da-da-da, and I'll I'll be there. So I don't, I don't want it to get yeah. to that point where, an anonymous brand and people saying oh Bedtonic used to be great you know you could talk to Julie but now they've just got so big I don't want to I I really that's really important to me to to keep you know to keep nurturing the customer side of my business 
Yeah, and look, I think if it's important to you and a key value to you and your business, then really it's about making a decision about what else you backfill as you scale. And I agree. I think in this day and age, particularly where we are with social media, uh, you have to have that face to the business. And if people find, you know, that they've found you on Instagram, um, they see that it, the business is run by Julie and then they're actually getting customer support from Julie, they love it. Yeah, that's right. And that, and, and that is what I love at the moment and that's what I hope that I will be able to continue to do. I don't want to become, you know, an anonymous brand. So it's funny because I never really knew how the business would evolve and I guess I thought that I would step back reasonably quickly and I know that people say you know in business do what you do best and outsource the rest and I think at the end of the day even although I am often packing the orders here myself the packing of the orders actually doesn't take a lot of my time a lot of my time is um, the customer service with emails and you know I might get a, a dress returned and because they want a bigger size and um, then I'm contacting people about that so um that at the moment is a bigger part. The actual packing of the orders isn't um, like I always thought that that would take so long. It actually doesn't. Like you can whack them out pretty quickly, and you know, and the post-it bags and, sure. and the courier labels are all pretty quick these days. Mm. So that's sure. Mm. So Julie, we touched briefly before on you know when you decided to uh, create Bed Tonic and you wanted to go direct to customer. How has that sort of panned out for you over the last four years? Are you 90% e-commerce and, and how does that sort of mix? If we took a pie chart, how does that look for you in terms of your different sales channels? Yeah, um, that's an interesting question because, you know, that was the decision I made when I started and my price point obviously matched the fact that we are online and therefore I had to realise that I won't ever be able to put my bedding in stores around Australia or in Perth and, you know, sometimes I've thought, did I shoot myself in the foot by doing that and, and not being able to grow my brand, you know, through retail? But I have to honour the reasons why I started the business, which was to make linen more affordable um, and my price point where it is. I would have to add, you know, if I was in retail, I'd have to add another $100, $150 per set. So with my bedding, I have it in two stores here in Perth and it's just on commission, which works for me here um i think people in perth because they know that i am a perth business i think often they want to be able to come and touch and feel the linen so you know i'm 80 what i'm 80 90 percent online um the 10 percent is the the linen that i have in the two stores and of course i go to i go to markets um when i can to get my to put my brand out there a little bit more gourmet escape last year um Fremantle arts markets um just meeting people and being the person behind the brand. But, yeah, having said that, there won't ever be a chance for me to be in retail, but I feel like in Perth I am able to say, look, head on down to Darling and Domain or Asbury Park. You can touch and feel the linen. Kate's got all the colours there, and that works really well in Perth. Um, interestingly enough, 60% of our customers are eastern states, <clears throat> um, and they will contact me for a fabric swatch but most of the time people are pretty savvy you know they're quite happy to buy online without having to come and see so yeah 
Um, I'm predominantly an online business. Um, maybe one day there might be a little bit more there for us to get our loungewear out and about. I am working on another couple of designs and I think um, that is something that I've, I'm looking towards uh, being able to wholesale our loungewear. There's possibly um, an opening there for us to do that. But as far as bedding goes, yes, we'll always be online. Julie, in terms of the last four years, have you had any major game changes, like something that you've either done or come across or some software or a person that you've met that you've just been able to uh, really evolve your understanding of what you're doing and or how you've grown? I mean, for me, I guess when I started, I didn't really have any idea. I mean, 50 and I... I actually didn't even know what Instagram was. Um, I certainly knew about emailing, but, you know, I'd come from customer service with coffees and I was a barista. So um, I really didn't know much about social media or anything um, at the time. And I took myself off to a course that was here in Perth and it was designed around um, putting yourself out there with the media, you know, like telling mm. a story, media, to hear stories, etc. So I went along to this course for two days, but the funny thing was before I actually attended the course, I was reading the newspaper one day and I thought, how, I, you know, I'm going to have to start advertising. When I launched the business, of course, my friends bought the linen, but then all of a sudden I thought, okay, so my friends have all bought the linen. What am I going to do now? I've got to start getting it out there. So I thought, okay, oh, maybe I'll look at advertising. So I looked up in the back of the Sunday Times and there's a lift out here in our local newspaper called Home and I thought, well, maybe I'd always looked at that myself and I'd always, you know, there used to be some, they would interview different people from nice houses and I thought, okay. I, the, and I remember the guy's name was Karen and, I, and he had a phone number and I thought, okay, I'll ring Karen and I'll speak to him about advertising costs. But just before I did that, I was looking at a photo of the editor and she looked really personable and I thought, oh, she looks lovely. And I thought, you know what, I'm just going to email her. Now, I didn't know anything, anything about how to contact the media, what to do, how to do it, what to say. So I just sent this lovely-looking lady called Sandra an email and I said, hi, I have just launched a business in linen bedding and, you know, I'm just wondering about advertising and blah, blah. Anyway, within 30 minutes um, her journalist called me and said she wanted to come out and have a chat and they had seen on my website that we were living in a little workers cottage in West Leadable and so the next thing they came out and they spoke the editor Jade and a photographer and they booked a time to come back and do a story on us and that was amazing I mean that ended up being in the home section it was still remember it was Father's Day three four years ago on a Sunday and we couldn't wait to get to the fuel shop on the Saturday night as soon as the, the papers were delivered. And it was two full pages from memory, maybe even two and a half full pages of, of a, you know, a photo about us in the cottage and how, how I had come about creating this business. And um, I think we, yeah, a couple of photos of Molly and I, and I just was blown away. And I think that for me was... Um, when I realised that I I didn't have any experience on who to contact, how to contact, how to do it, but I was just being me. And I remember mm. I then had coffee with Sandra. She came around, the editor, and I had more, we had morning tea on my balcony and I said, what was it about 
me that made you do that because you must get contacted by hundreds of people and she said you were just being you you know you weren't trying you weren't you weren't trying to bribe me you weren't you you were just touching base and just being so authentically you and so I went off to this weekend which was um not this weekend this two-day course and they spoke a lot about that a lot about how you know to talk how to talk to the media and they had templates and they had different ways and we spent two days there um how to write how to approach how to do what to wear what to say and it's funny because I'd already had those two days in the paper and I was thinking to myself I think I'll just keep being me so the next thing I did was I wrote um I wrote a similar email to the editor of House and Garden same thing you know um I think just through being me and not not trying to be um anything else I think that was where I've probably if I could pass that on to anyone because I have had a lot I guess over four years a lot of people say to me oh Julie how you know the media love you you've had so many features in house and garden and country style and um you know and the STM and and they say you know what do you do do you are you paying do you bribe do you give them free linen I say (laughs) no I actually do None of that because I got told by the editor that I'm talking about in the early days they they aren't allowed to accept product. So, you, you you know, I can't do that anyway. But I guess for me, the big I wouldn't call it a game changer, but certainly something that I have found, I guess, uh, quite fascinating is that, yeah, you just reach out to people and they're human beings, you know, there's nothing to be afraid of and just reach out and, and talk and tell your story or... You don't need a flashy uh, press release template. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's right. I mean, this, I came away with a manual. I think I spent $2,800 on that two-day course, in fact, maybe even more, um, and I had a manual there with templates. Um, but then I thought to myself, you know, then these people will receive these emails and they'll look just how everyone else's are looking. Why not just, why not just be me and just... You know, put ourselves out there, put our brands out there. Um, so what if you don't get an answer? So what if you don't hear back from someone? They might, they might, you know, it could be just another little chink where they think, oh, okay, cool, that's uh, that girl sounds nice, and then they might hear about your brand again. So yeah, I do. I love the whole organic side of of business and scaling. So look, um, uh, I think being, especially being online, how do you achieve? <coughs> visibility like in terms of your e-commerce channel itself and things like you know seo and making sure that people can find you especially that at 60 percent now that you've got coming from interstate who perhaps aren't seeing some of the local press that you've got or haven't come to hear about you uh from the you know the sort of wa connection um you know how did how does that side work and then how do you what's effective in terms of your marketing and socials it's a good question now because we're so, you know, as I said, we're four years in and, and I do think back now, I think back and I, I wonder how did, it's interesting, I thought when I started the business that I would create this business in WA and, you know, I'd, I'd build a base here and then hopefully I would push it out and it would go out around Australia and, and in fact, the ex- absolute opposite happened. I ended up gaining traction in the eastern states, um, at, you know, Tasmania, Victoria, South Australia, a lot, a lot. We sell a lot over there, but um, yeah, it was really the eastern states that I gained traction with first. And I'm, 
you know, I'm thinking with SEO, I did start, I started to invest money in SEO, but I got so confused because I got so many stories from different people about, yes, it's good. No, it's not necessary. In the early days, I found it really difficult. In fact, I still do now to know where to put my money for, you know, obviously I've got an an Mm. advertising or a budget spend. I find it incredibly difficult because when you don't know what you don't know, it's quite frightening the thought of putting money into something that you really don't know much about. You know, this person might say he's going to work on SEO for me, but how do I know he's not out having lunch and, uh, you know, drinking wine with his mates every day? I've got no idea. Um, So for me, uh, I guess we, like I said, I I was a bit ballsy. I I possibly approached people and, and we got some, we definitely got some, Features in some um, in, in the press, so that was House and Garden Country Style from memory. Um, it was another organic magazine that wrote an article on us. Um, Facebook was a big one for me in the early days, and I definitely ran campaigns with a company who did special targeting for Facebook marketing, and I also did a course myself with a girl in the States. Um, it was very complicated. I had to keep watching her little videos about 15 times before I could even understand <laughs> what she was trying to say. But I think it did really well um, because obviously I spent zero on advertising in the sense that there certainly wasn't ad- advertisements in magazines or anything like that. So to gain that traction in the Eastern States had to be purely from uh, free press, as in free features, just through touching base with people, telling the story, um, and once again on the on the Facebook ad- advertising. Um, moving forward from there, oh, and Instagram. Um, that was another thing that definitely I think was very helpful in the early days. I had this beautiful linen, and I thought, you know, I can do photo shoots myself, which we did, and we had some amazing photos, but. I collaborated with a lot of people in the early days. So I chose a couple of girls here in WA, um, both mums who are interior stylists uh, slash photographers, and I sent linen their way um, in return for product shots, um, but relaxed and just, you know, showing how the linen is in people's houses. So that's how I started growing on Instagram, I guess. Um, And back then I didn't promote any any um, Instagram posts. So I, I, you know, ran competitions, I think, through Instagram. Um, we had giveaways where we where we had lots and lots of different ways of, of growing my audience, I suppose. When I think about it now, um, it would have been giveaways with, um, you know, tag a friend, sign up for $20 off. Yeah, different ways of building my email database, different ways of um, leveraging through giveaways, competitions. Uh, yeah, lots of. I mean, I'm very lucky because I have a beautiful brand, and everyone wants it to. Um, everyone, you know, to take the linen for a giveaway. It's not like I'm selling carjacks or something like that. So it's it's, it's quite a popular product for people to want to get for sure. wrapping from giveaway. I think that can also be a challenge as well when you've got an expensive product uh, in terms of working with influencers per se. You mm. can't do a you can't do a spray and pray approach of 50 people. You have to be a little bit selective with who you work with because the product is so expensive to, to give away. That's right, yes. And, you know, I mean, I had a couple of disasters in the early days where I, you know, I had a man that approached me and he was doing this amazing, he was starting this amazing business and 
uh, he was going to be promoting all these different brands and I thought, you know, and I was pretty green back then and I, so I thought, right, I sent him a duvet and I think a set of sheets. Well, the images came back and I was absolutely heartbroken. It looked like they'd been taken on the Nullarbor in a motel um, and I, I said to him, <laughs> I, I think I could have done better on my iPhone. It looked like he'd drunk three bottles of wine and he was on his iPhone and he was staying in a motel on the Nullarbor. It's honestly what the images looked like and I was so upset. Uh, but I just had to let it go. And then the linen got sent back to me. I asked for it back. It came back with coffee stains and makeup on it. And I tell you what, it, it, you know, you have some experiences like that and it really makes you stop and think, be very careful about who you who you want, you know, who you choose to to work with in a business like, you know, what we're doing. So I've got a really nice little group of people around me and I've been really lucky with, and it's interesting to see too who's connected with who. So I, you know, have a bunch in the eastern states that are all connected to each other through, you know, a photographer that works with country style to a girl who has an Airbnb in Tasmania to Esperance Chalet Village, um, down in Fee buys a lot of linen for the for her accommodation down there but it's interesting to see all the connections and I think you, you, you can definitely reach out to people that way too. Julie just sort of wrapping up I'd love to hear whether it's a business book or a life book what's a book that you've read that you've loved and has helped you in respect of, of running your business or life or balance or mindset? When I was working, I, I never really worked nine to five, but I did take an office job for a couple of years because I finished up with, you know, working in the mines. I'd been up at Argyle Diamonds and I thought, oh, look, I just want to be an office girl and wear a skirt and some stockings and put some lipstick on. So I took a, a job in the city for a couple of years where I was working in an office and I, it was a government job and I really wasn't very good at it because I, I'm probably being creative and, and not being not liking having to adhere to a schedule, etc. And I remember I had this supervisor at the time and Bethwin B, I used to call her, and she was quite strict and she wasn't happy about the fact that I was a little bit probably um, too casual for her liking. And anyway, we had a, we had a um, I, I don't know what you call it, a staff meeting or something one day where, you know, I had my one-on-one with her and they could see when you were logged onto your phones and when you weren't and la, la, la. And anyway, Bethwin B, she said, Julie, I know that hospitality is where you want to head. And she said, and I just see you doing so well at that. So she said, I want to give you this book. And she gave me a book and it was called Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. So I went off with my Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway book. And after reading that, I actually resigned from that position and I went forward into, at the time, I wanted a gourmet deli. So I thought, well, I'll go and put myself in the business first. So that book really was the turnaround for me of, um, I guess, learning that it's okay to change direction and that it's okay because, you know, leap and the net will appear as long as we're following what we're passionate about. There's that book. And then there was also another book that I read called, I think it was called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And I remember reading one of them mm. and thinking, you know, my dad was an entrepreneur, but he never he never stuck with anything for long enough. And um it was really interesting to read this book and see that one of the habits was persistence. And I looked and I thought, you know, I'm no different to my dad. When I think of him with his popular science magazines and he always wanted to import something from the States and make a squillion dollars. But 
I see that he started all of these businesses, but he never persisted with any of them. So it may be wrong timing mm. or whatever. But well, I think I think you can see those two elements of persistence and taking the leap with what you've done with Bed Tonic. So well done, Julie. It's been wonderful hearing about your journey you. so far, and we look forward to following you. Yes, thanks so much. Julie would love to extend Product Lounge podcast listeners an exclusive 15% off the web store. Use the code PLP15 at bedtonic.com. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. It would mean the world. See you next time.